I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Um, if you haven't figured it out already, we're going to be uh, in verses 7 through 13 for quite a while. We're going to camp out here for a while. There's so much here to, to look at, to examine, uh, to brush off the surface dust and uh, just really dig down into the Scriptures and benefit from these glorious truths that are contained particularly in verses 7 through 13. So let us look together at the Word of God at Hebrews chapter 8. If you don't have a copy of the sermon notes today, beloved, you are going to need them. So raise your hand if you don't have a copy and Nolan will bring you a copy. Hebrews chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 13 and would ask you to follow along. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, of these things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now... Hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God. And they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Holy Word. As many of you know, I work in the commercial construction industry and such a job gives me the privilege of really witnessing some of the most beautifully designed buildings become completed from start to finish. 
at the beginning of each new building project, I see these big giant boys. You, you've seen, you got the, the toys when you were little you played with, and uh, Rowan's with us today visiting, and he probably has some of these at home. The, the big giant Tonka trucks, you know, these big giant massive pieces of machinery that come in and they move the dirt around and they level it off and they prepare it for the concrete contractor who then comes in and he brings his specializing equipment and he digs up that ground and he pours concrete and he makes a solid footer so that the trade that I work in, the masonry company, we can come and we can erect a foundation for the building to be placed upon. It's sort of like a synchronized orchestra. And perhaps, we'll share with Brother Ross before church, sometimes it's not so synchronized. There's men in here that work in construction. We try to synchronize it, amen. But, but, it, but it's supposed to be somewhat of a synchronized orchestra. Each trade's called in right at, the right, amount of, uh, right at the right time to contribute their specific part to the overall project in order to see it to completion. Well, last week, we consider that in a very similar way, the first covenant or the Mosaic covenant that our text is referring to, it was designed by God for a very specific purpose to be utilized at the right time, a specific time, and it had a very particular distinct function in order to move God's redemptive, written, composed history to its completed end. It was very similar to that. Like that of the initial stages of a building project, the first covenant, the old covenant, was specifically designed to perform a particular purpose by God. We learned last week, though, that that purpose, that first covenant that the text is saying is faulty, its purpose was not to administer spiritual perfection. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. We labored extensively last week to show that. The first covenant, that faulty covenant, it was never designed to administer the substance of Christ's free grace. How did we conclude that? Well, we looked, if you recall, we looked at its legal structure. It never was able to give free grace because of the confines of that structure, how it was organized by God with the people. And also there was a massive spiritual defect of it, wasn't there? Because of the natural depravity of man, they cannot obey it. And this is why in our text today, we're still looking at verses 7 through 13 of your Bible. This is why in verse 7, the text says, If that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. You see, dear friends, it was precisely because of its design defects that the first covenant, the faulty covenant, could not serve as the framework to move God's redemptive purposes forward. No, he had to have a different covenant to do that. And this is what we're inching toward Sunday by Sunday to begin to learn more about. The first covenant had served its purpose, and now it was time for it to fade away. It was no longer needed according to God, the master builder's design plan. And this is why in your Bibles, you see in verse 13, the inspired writer says, that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now last Lord's Day, I mentioned that it's important for us to grasp the significance of the defects of the first covenant. Why? Why why is all this talk about covenants necessary? Well, first of all, beloved, it's in our Bibles. But, But second of all, 
learning and looking at the first covenant, particularly last week, its defects, it helps us to fuller appreciate the new and the better covenant which our text is dealing with. What this first century inspired preacher was helping these first century Christians converted out of Judaism to see. It's not until you understand exactly how horrible the first covenant was in its rigorous defects will you fully embrace and appreciate what you have in Christ in the new covenant. And so... It's not until we fully understand the rigor and the weight of the first law of covenant and its works principle can we as New Testament Christians securely rest as we just sung in the song in the substance of the free grace administered through the better covenant which Christ mediates. Understanding the old, appreciating the new helps us to rightly discern and keep distinct the law and gospel distinction. Now, to help us further understand some of these themes related to the relationship of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, to help us better be equipped of the law and the gospel distinction so we don't get it confused and we abuse the grace of God, we confuse the grace of God, we we mishandle the free grace of God, we need to look at one more aspect of the First Covenant, that is the Faulty Covenant, the Old Covenant, before we move on to really begin to unpack in the text the aspects that distinguish the new covenant, which Lord willing will do next week. Now last week we considered the old covenant's defects, what it could not do, and why it needed to be replaced, verse 7. Today I want us to consider something else about the old covenant, as you see in your sermon notes. I want us to consider how that the old covenant was always and intentionally designed to be in the process of recession. Recession just meaning an activity that is going to cease. And it was always designed and was always understood by the prophets I seek to demonstrate from the word of God that it would be replaced as what's on the surface being implied in verses 7 and 13. I mean, just a tertiary reading of verses 7 and 13 you, you get the impression that the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant was faulty. It needs to be replaced. It's vanishing away. But is that really what that means? Because there are many Christians who say, no, that's not what that means. And so we have today to make sure that we understand correctly this relationship and we're properly interpreting the word of God in relationship of the old covenant to the new covenant. Is the new covenant indeed receding, recessing, in its session, to be replaced by the new covenant. Now, I'm gathering this concept of recession and replacement from several places in the passage, which you probably have already noticed. Look at verse 8. Finding fault with them, this was the members of the old covenant, he saith, behold, the days come. Something's going to happen in the future. That's, that's prophetic language. It's anticipating something different, right? Things aren't good the way they are now. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. Verse 10, I will make, a, I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Again, pointing to the future. Things aren't good in this current covenant arrangement. Something's going to come hereafter. This concept of recession and replacements in the text. Verse 13. And that he saith the new covenant. 
He hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. In order for us to, I think, really grasp an appreciation for this concept of recession and replacement, for us to really grasp that we're interpreting how Jeremiah 31 is being properly applied in Hebrews 8, it warrants us, beloved, to go back to Jeremiah 31. It warrants us to go back and to make sure we understand how Jeremiah would have understood this new covenant pronouncement that would come after those days, or behold, the days are coming. This is, you know, as we've already observed before, in Hebrews 8, 7 through 13, he is quoting Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And so here's the roadmap that I'd like us to follow for today's message. First, since this passage, 7 through 13, is a quotation of Jeremiah 31, I'd like for us to briefly examine that prophecy in its overall context and then see what it has to offer us in relation to what the writer of Hebrews is seeking to accomplish. And then, secondly, under a second heading, I'd like to consider the overall context which it is being applied and interpreted here in Hebrews 8. So we're going to go to Jeremiah. We're going to look at the uh, quotation of Jeremiah 31 to make sure we properly understand that. And then we're going to go to Hebrews, back to Hebrews 8 in our passage day and say, how is he applying that? Okay, pretty simple. And we hope to demonstrate, or I hope to see in the text, that it is teaching us this Mosaic covenant, this old covenant framework, has been in the process of gradually recessing to be finally abrogated, done away with, and replaced by the new. Well, let us be good Bereans. And let us now go back to the book of Jeremiah, as you see in your sermon notes. And consider the prophecy in its original context. The new covenant prophecy that we're learning about in Hebrews 8 that's being spoken of much was revealed First of all, well, I shouldn't say first, first revealed, but it was very clearly revealed in this prophecy found in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. When considering the original context of Jeremiah chapter 31, we discover that on many occasions leading up to chapter 31, there was the essential nature being evidenced end that covenant arrangement. We learned some of this last week. This is part of the reason why it was defective because of its essential nature. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of progress to get to chapter 31 of Jeremiah. We're not just going to jump to Jeremiah 31 because we want to make sure we're looking at it in its overall context, all right, to make sure we're properly interpreting Jeremiah 31. You have it there uh, in, your, in your notes. Let's go ahead to Jeremiah 7. Verses 21 through 26. This, this demonstrates for us the essential nature of that old first covenant. Reiterating the fact why it was faulty. Why it was defective. Okay, We're building up to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 7, beginning with verse 21. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, put your burnt offerings unto your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning the burnt offerings or sacrifices. Going back to what A.J. was saying, 
and acts. We worship God the way He's prescribed it. But, verse 23, this thing commanded I them, saying, here's the essential nature of that old first covenant, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. So, walk in the way I have commanded you, and it will be well with you. Verse 24, But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imaginations of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. This is what we read this morning in Jeremiah 18. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. They had the first covenant arrangement. They had the legal framework by which they could be blessed. They could be the people of God. But notice with me verse 27. Therefore... Thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken to thee, that thou also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. Although here in verse 27, God tells Jeremiah that the people will not repent, God still commands Jeremiah to call them unto repentance and obedience because he knew, based upon the essential nature of the old covenant arrangement, it was the only hope that they had. There was not going to be God turning away from their mercy or their iniquities and giving them mercy without a repentance and obedience. That's why Jeremiah, let's go to Jeremiah 11, verses 1-8. through 8. This is what he does. He understands the nature of that old covenant. He understands that unless they obey and they do what God says, He will not turn away His hand of wrath. He will not turn back the armies of Nebuchadnezzar from coming and leading them off into exile. Chapter 11 of Jeremiah, he obeys the command of God, even though God tells him they're not going to listen to you. Beginning with verse 1, Jeremiah 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant. What covenant is he talking about? He's talking about that first covenant, that faulty covenant, that defective covenant. Speak unto the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say thou unto them. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of this covenant. What happens when they don't obey the words of the covenant? They're cursed. Which, verse 4, I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace saying, Obey my voice and do them according to all which I commanded you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God. That's all predicated, again, on this essential nature of the covenant. You obey. That I may, verse 5, perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. There is a legal oath And if they do what they are commanded to do, God will do what He is is saying He will do. He's condescending down to them and He's giving them His word. Then I answered, continuing, and said, So be it, O Lord. Verse 6, Then the Lord said unto me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant and do them. 
Do them. Why couldn't they do them? We saw it last week. Because they had wicked, hardened, depraved hearts. But He's still calling them to do it. Are you seeing the amplified defectiveness of that covenant arrangement? Do it. Well, why aren't they doing it in the first place? Because they don't want to do it. And there's nothing offered in that covenant arrangement that will change their heart to incline them to do it. Verse 7, I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore, I bring it upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant. It was all mapped out. If you don't do the words of the, if you don't obey the covenant rules, I have the legal right. I am justified in bringing cursing upon you. So, just like your brethren in Israel that had been led off by the Assyrians, now the Babylonians are coming against you. And as we saw in Jeremiah eighteen, he's the potter; they're the clay, and the blame rests at their feet, doesn't it? Now. Here we're learning, aren't we, as we're building up to Jeremiah 31, that according to the legal covenant structure of that first covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant they received after they were led out of the land of Egypt, and according to their own natural spiritual depravity, their disobedience is going to result in judgment upon them as Judah, as it has already happened upon Israel. But now, an important aspect for our purposes today God, being a faithful God, He promises, as we're getting closer to Jeremiah 31, He promises that a remnant of people amongst this rebellious, hard-hearted, stiff-necked people, there's going to be a remnant of people under this first covenant arrangement that will be restored. In other words, there's going to be a, a people amongst the people that are going to be brought back to the land and restored to God. They didn't deserve it. They're right in with the lot of the rest of them. Worshiping God according to their own imaginations. Looking at the prophet, mocking, laughing. Perhaps they were on the council of the conspirators who wanted to dig the pit and throw Jeremiah down in it. It's ironically, or it's ironic that that pit actually is part of what rescues Jeremiah to later minister amongst the time of the captivity. Going back to Jeremiah 18, sometimes you're in a pit, but it's God's purpose. Stay in the pit. It's good. It's for your good. He's all wise. Well, they didn't deserve uh, being brought back and restored, this remnant. But due to God's purposes, due to God's redemptive, gracious plan, He does say through Jeremiah, He's going to restore some. So now we're moving forward in understanding Jeremiah 31. And we come, as you see in your notes, to Jeremiah 30. Look at Jeremiah 30, verse 3. Lo, the days come. There's a future fulfillment of this. Saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people, Israel and Judah. Now, Jeremiah does this a lot in his prophecy. He mentions Israel, who are already in captivity, and he mentions Judah. Because since Rehoboam's time, they've been a divided people. 
And so when he's emphasizing repetitively Israel and Judah, God's pro, he's through the prophet Jeremiah announcing that I'm bringing all of my covenant people back together. I'm not going to lose one. I'm not going to forget one. I'm going to fulfill it to all of them together. Lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the, uh, again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers. fathers. Had a little Scottish accent there, didn't I? And they shall possess it. Now, to add further hope to those under this legal covenant, this legal judgment, he gives them this announcement, there's going to be some of you that I'm going to return back. To add to their hope, as they're getting ready to be carried away by the Babylonians in exile, that they deserve, God promises Rachel's sorrows will be consoled. And so he gives even more encouragement. This brings us up into Jeremiah 31. Turn to Jeremiah 31. Look at verses 15 and 20. We're getting closer to our text that's being used in Hebrews 8. Beginning with verse 15. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Thus saith the Lord, refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord. And they, your children, Rachel, shall come again from the land of the enemy, and there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord that thy children shall come again to their own border. Notice the connection with the land. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. So there is a spirit of repentance now given amongst the people here at this time. And this is the bemoaning of Ephraim in verse 18. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned. I repented, and after that I was instructed. I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Now, after the announcement of this promise to Rachel's children, comes our text that's being used in Hebrews chapter 8, which is a vital part of understanding the telescope view of God's redemptive plan. And it comes with the establishment of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Look at that. After pronouncing Rachel's children, a remnant of them will be coming back to their borders, possessing the land once again. He goes into this prophecy, beginning with verse 31. Behold, the days come. This is futuristic. Saith the Lord that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
There's that idea again of everyone being brought together once again. Now notice very importantly in verse 32 what he says. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them. Now for the sake of reiteration, I still have to stress that. He's saying, you're going to come back to the land and I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, united people. Is, is, is it going to be like the first one? It's very clear. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It's right there on the, on the, on the surface of the text. Verse 33 goes on. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor. You're, you're hearing, this is what's in Hebrews 8, young ones. And every man his brother. No. There won't be that saying, know the Lord, come know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Because I can't do that under this current legal uh, framework right now. I can have temporary appeasement. You guys remember that last week? That was a defect of the old covenant. But I still have to remember the sin. And that's why you guys got to come back, he's saying, in the old covenant arrangement year after year, several times during the year, to appease my wrath because it's only temporary. Now here in the overall context, we can't ignore that we just scanned all the context of Jeremiah, especially in chapter 30, here in the overall context, we cannot ignore nor be guilty of minimizing the promise of this new covenant in its connection with the return of Rachel's children from bondage to the land that was granted to them in the first covenant. It's right there. You got chapter 30 in the context saying you're going to return back to the land. And behold, the days are coming and I will make a new covenant, not according to the one that I made with their fathers. There is that connection of the land promise that God's making to these exiled Jews with the new covenant. We can't minimize that. That's what's in the text here. In other words, through the prophecy in its context of the new covenant that we're reading about now, part of bringing this new covenant into reality in some way or another will be connected to a return of the Jews back to their land from their Babylonian exile. There's a connection in some way or another. We can't escape it. However, while we admit this, brothers and sisters, we must also not minimize nor underemphasize another fact that's in the prophecy of Jeremiah connected with the new covenant. And it is this, that the new covenant, no matter how way, shape, or form is connected to the land promise that he just told them in the prophet of Jeremiah through his prophecy. The new covenant that he promises will not be established until their Messiah King arrives. Turn to Jeremiah 31. You're there. What am I, what am I talking about? You're, you should be there. Verses 5 and 8. This new covenant promise, while yes, is connected with this, this land promise of returning back from exile, it won't be fully established until the arrival of its mediator, the promised Messiah. We gather this from verses 5 and 8. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, 
that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. There's this promised king. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth. Now their song is going to be changed. The Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country where they've been carried away to. And from all countries hither I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. And here's where it gets interesting. The prophecy that we just examined in Jeremiah regarding the return of Rachel's children from the Babylonian exile, you know your Bibles, I trust, and you know that that took place, didn't it? They were in exile some 70 years. And the promise that God gave Jeremiah that was just preceding the announcement of this new covenant that he's going to make, which will be established with the arrival of their Messiah King, happened. They returned to the land. By the year 539 BC, many of you may know this, that Cyrus, the mightier Persian king, by this time he had defeated the last standing king of the Babylonian empire. Now, King Cyrus, if historians are correct, he was known as a clever strategist. He was a savvy politician. And he presented himself to the Babylonian, conquered Babylonian Empire as a liberator from the heavy hand of Nebuchadnezzar and the subsequent Babylonian kings. He was known, King Cyrus was, to be very tolerant of other religions. And in fact, one of his greatest acts recorded in Scripture as a king that he did was he freed all of the Jews. And he told them, go back to your land, possess it and rebuild the temple. And then you know, perhaps from the book of Ezra, the Jews led by Zerubbabel and others, they traveled from Babylon, just as Jeremiah had prophesied they would. And they went back, and there's a whole full list of all the Jews that went back, that remnant that God restored to their land. And upon their arrival, some of the people settled in Jerusalem, while others, they returned to their own former towns and homes. And Rachel's children had returned. They began to rebuild the temple during the second year after they arrived there. Some believe between the years, uh, the year 1515 and 1516, the second temple is completed. So it took roughly five, four to five years to get it reconstructed. The second temple stood, according to historians, for 585 years before it was finally destructed in the year 70 AD, or 70 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it's never been rebuilt again. So they come back to their land, just as Jeremiah prophesied they would, and they begin to implement again the covenant, the law of the covenant. Boy, according to Ephraim's confession we read about, we learned our lesson slapped their thigh, they were ashamed, they repented, they wanted to come back, and they wanted to live by the covenant so that they could be blessed. We understand from this historical narrative something important. The actual fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy 
regarding the return from captivity happened, but yet notice something else didn't happen. Something else didn't happen. Where's their Messiah King? Where's the establishment of this new covenant that's not according to the first covenant? How would Jeremiah have understood that? Because he says, God's going to bring us back to our land. Oh, and then here's what's even better. God is going to establish a new covenant with us, not according to the one that's got us in this predicament. Theologians use a term, I think it's helpful, to understand what's going on in this context of Jeremiah's prophecy. And it's called, as you see in your sermon notes, a compressed perspective, a compressed prophetical perspective. In other words, Jeremiah, as he's receiving this revelation from God, he gets a glimpse of the near future of what's going to happen, a return from exile. But but what he can't see is the centuries that would chronologically divide the coming of the Messianic King, which then would inaugurate and replace the covenant arrangement with the new covenant. They, they call that, it's a, you see, it's kind of a, a compressed perspective. So in his, in his revelation, he sees this complex event of these things happening, but he can't distinguish the timeline from it. Now, for our purposes today, since Jeremiah's prophecy was partially fulfilled with their return from their Babylonian exile, but their Messianic king had not arrived, the Jews... The believing Jews, brothers and sisters, what would they have been doing? They would have been expecting, would they not, the coming of the Messiah King, but not just the coming of the Messiah King, but an establishing of a new covenant, right? They would have, what I'm trying to demonstrate here is, they would have been expecting that their covenant arrangement that they had been under was going to recede away. Now, this recession of this covenant arrangement that God made with them after they returned back from their Babylonian captivity to the land of their fathers and rebuild the temple would take another approximately 500 years for it actually to start unfolding in history. The closest that the old covenant members who were watching who were waiting, who were praying, who were looking and desiring, would have ever gotten to the actual unfolding of the Messiah King. And the events happening in history would have been Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. This is the last glimpse that they got to where is this new covenant? Where is the Messiah King? This is the last thing they got. Behold, I will send my messenger, the prophet Malachi said. Let's pause for a second here. Because it just again highlights the weight and the defectiveness of this first covenant. Remember the context of Malachi. They have been back in their land for quite some time. And they're diligently, Fraser, they're ardently trying to keep these rules and these covenants. And what happens? They begin to compromise the sacrifices. They begin to shave the corners off the rules a little bit. And Malachi comes as a prophet and basically is saying to them, don't you remember how we got in that position in the first place? Repent. Obey the Lord so that we may be blessed. Again, amplifying why the need of that new covenant and better covenant needed to be brought about. 
Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, his, his prophecy pointing to the recession and the replacement of the old covenant by the new covenant says, I will send a messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Meaning, you're delighting in the messenger of that covenant. You're expecting the messenger of that covenant. You delight, you're wanting that messenger of the covenant to come. Because it's a better covenant. God promised us this Messiah King. He He promised us this better covenant. Behold, continuing, he says, He shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, But who may abide the day of His coming? Who shall stand when He appeareth? For He is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. And He shall sit as a refiner, and a purifier of silver. And He shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver. And they, that, I'm sorry, they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in the former years. With the messenger of that covenant, the arrival of their messianic king, finally, Israel and Judah, they will offer sacrifices in righteousness, but not until then. Now, we take all of this, and we come to Hebrews 8. What is going on in Hebrews 8 is that the inspired writer He is saying, he is demonstrating by using Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Now that we've looked at Jeremiah in its context, he's saying, oh, dear Jewish friends, Jesus was that king. We are now in the new covenant. That day has dawned. It has arrived You are part of experiencing the blessing of that. Don't ever dare look at that old covenant and think it has anything for you. It's inferior. It's faulty. It's defective. Come find rest and peace in Christ, your Messiah King. That's why he says in verse 13, it was made old. And it's near to vanishing away. Now as we draw closer to the end of our time today, I want us to consider this aspect of what does he mean by vanishing away? Should this language, and what we've already considered from Jeremiah, should it be interpreted by us as the new covenant actually replacing in all of its entirety the old covenant? Is that what it means? Should we interpret it that way? I wanted to go through, you know, the context of Jeremiah. I think that's how Jeremiah was understanding. I think that's how Malachi was understanding it. But is but is that right? Or does this mean, as some propose that it means, not a, not a few in the visible Christian church, that the first covenant is still active between Jehovah and the Jews, but it's temporarily paused, while the new covenant is being utilized by God to adopt into his family, non-Jews. So what I'm trying to say, I'll move forward, I think it might be helpful. What I'm trying to say, when he says that the new covenant has come, and Jesus is that messianic king, and it's been established, is he saying, there's the old covenant, is he saying 
that this stops and that the new covenant, I'll put it up here, has now replaced it? Is he saying that? Or is he saying, as many do believe this, that the old covenant should put a cross right here. The old covenant actually is on pause. So I'll put God in mind. God hasn't replaced it. He hasn't forgotten about it. He remembers all the legal framework and strategies that he, that he had in it. And he's bringing in all non-Jews right now during this period of time. And then they believe, we're out of space here, but then they believe, oh, the old covenant's going to be revived. God's going to turn back to his covenant legal framework that he made with the Jews. And these old covenant people, they're going to be brought together in this new covenant. Is, is that how we're supposed to interpret that? Or, here's the third option, that's the majority. I'm sorry. These two options are the majority amongst the visible church. You have some that believe in the old covenant. It's still right now just temporarily being paused. And it's going to come back into existence when all the Gentiles, non-Jews have been brought into God's family, and then we're all going to be together. And then there's another covenant. One that you probably, since we're reformed, you probably hear this more than anybody because Baptists have lost their covenant theology. And it goes like this. The old covenant that we're reading about We've been trying to demonstrate there's an expected recession and replacement of it. Actually, never replaced at all. It is the new covenant. That's what a majority of reform people believe. The old covenant doesn't get replaced. Should be no expectation of it being replaced because it actually is the new covenant just administered differently. Different form, but it's the same covenant. Same God, same covenant. Okay? So, does the text, Behold, the days are coming, after those days, vanishing away, I will make a new covenant. Does it mean that the old covenant arrangement or framework was abrogated and done away with? It served its purpose in the building and composure of God's redemptive plan. It's no longer needed, and it is indeed near, in the first century here, of completely fading away. Can any of you guys go outside right now and, and find the fog that was hovering on the, on the ground this morning? You can't. It's gone, isn't it? It's completely gone. It, it, is that what the text is saying? We can approach it, I think, two ways. First, did Jeremiah and the other biblical prophets understand the new covenant promise this way? Did they understand the new covenant was going to come and replace the old covenant? Do away with it. Don't need it anymore. And then secondly, we can look at it. Does the inspired writer of Hebrews and other apostles understand the new covenant promise this way? So let's look at the Old Testament prophets first. And I, I'm going to pick it up a little bit. I, I know we're getting into length time here. Okay, although Jeremiah, considering the prophets, how did Jeremiah and the Old Testament prophets look at it this way? Did they understand the Old Covenant was just going to be the New Covenant? Did they understand the Old Covenant was just going to be put on pause while the Gentiles are going to be brought in and then it was going to be revived again and there's going to be one happy kumbaya family where the, new co where the Old Covenant family and the New Covenant family are going to get together and roast marshmallows? Sorry for the hyperbole, but that's the gist of it. Although Jeremiah 31.31 is the only place in the Old Testament where the new covenant is used, we admit this, that phrase new covenant, 
The concept of the new covenant is expressed in other passages of Scripture, particularly Ezekiel 36, along with other prophecies of Israel. So you're probably still at Jeremiah. Just go to the next prophet, Ezekiel. Ezekiel saw the new covenant coming too, beloved. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. He says, now Ezekiel, he's writing this in captivity, in Babylonian captivity. Some believe it could be toward the beginning of it, I'm sorry, toward the middle of it or toward the end of the Babylonian captivity is when Ezekiel is writing this amongst the people of God. Then he says, God through Ezekiel says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Will I cleanse you? A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. This language from Ezekiel is accompanied, do you notice, with this sovereign God language, I will statements, which are associated and identified with what, the new, what identifies the new covenant that Jeremiah was talking about. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. The heart beat, you could say, the main core principle of all of these restoration prophecies of what God's sovereignly going to do, I think can best be captured with the common reoccurring phrase that's found in them all. Turn to Ezekiel 36, or you're there. Look at verse 20, 28. This common phrase about, I will be your God and you will be my people. He says in verse 28, And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Now, with regard to what we're talking about right now, the replacement of the old covenant with the new, with the better, with the second covenant, consider Ezekiel 37. Turn to Ezekiel 37, verses 24 and 27. Chapter 36, beloved, just demonstrated for us that the new covenant is in Ezekiel's prophecy. He sees it. He's speaking the new covenant language that a day will come where God will sovereignly do this. But what about the replacement of that work by God, of the old covenant by this better work? Well, we come to Ezekiel 37. David, my servant, shall be king over them. Well, David's dead. Who's he talking about? He's talking about David's greater son. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. Uh Uh-oh, we got a little bit of a problem, don't we? Because even though they went back in their land, they didn't stay there forever, did they? Is he talking about the old covenant here? No, he's not. He's talking about something else. Continuing, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Verse 26, moreover, I will make, here it is, a covenant of peace with them. 
it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, here's that phrase again. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He stresses these very same truths here, the covenant of peace, the the eternality of the covenant. Elsewhere in Ezekiel 34. All of this uh, is important because like Jeremiah, Ezekiel understands that there was an expected coming time when this promised Messiah King will arrive and at that time he will establish this covenant of peace, this everlasting covenant, which Ezekiel And everyone that were believing Jews would have heard, beloved, would have regarded in every possible way as a replacement of the current covenant that they were under. Mike, what blessing does it bring you if if he says to you, um, yeah, things are going to be changed up a little bit, you know. Okay, God understands it's a little bit rigorous to come here, you know, three, six, seven times a year. He's going to make it to where we only have to come to the temple once a year. I mean, you would be thankful for that, of course, you know. But that's still not handling the problem. It's still not handling the inability of God removing the moral imperfections within your heart that's driving your will to continue disobedience. Because you would say, oh, thank you, God, I appreciate that, but Lord, there's a deeper problem. There's a deeper problem going on. Because the deeper problem is, Lord, I really don't care whether I disobey this covenant arrangement that you've made with me. I, I, I just don't care. It does not affect me. This is all external societal religious conformity to me. That's the deeper problem. God, I want you to do something that will fix that because that's the real root issue. Why would they have expected this promised covenant of peace, this new covenant, this everlasting covenant to replace the old, old, for the very same reason the writer states in Hebrews in verse 7, because it was faulty. It was faulty. The same is true for Jeremiah's understanding of the relationship between the new covenant and the old covenant, especially how the new covenant would replace it, not reform it, not be a different form of the same covenant, a different administration of it. You hear this Language is so confusing at times from people. The very words of Jeremiah that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to use describes the second covenant demonstrates, I think, this point. You see it in your sermon notes. Look at the Hebrew word that he modifies this promised covenant with. He says, it is new, translated in English, which is a good translation. It's kadash, and it means a new thing. It literally means a new thing, something fresh. Now, here's what's important for us. This word that's translated new, the 48 times in the Old Testament that it's translated, this Hebrew word, into new, every single time, it means a replacement of something, not a modification or a change of it. I'm just going to list a couple. You can do your own homework at home, but I'm just going to give you a couple here. Exodus 1.8. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt. Same Hebrew word. It's new. He's a new guy. 
He's a totally different guy, right? Which knew not Joseph. Psalms 33. Psalms 33, verse 3, sorry. Sing unto me a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. Stop playing me the old songs, which aren't from your heart. I want a different song. I want those songs to be replaced with a different song. So the word new means new. It is different in every imaginable way. Isaiah 67, 17, last one. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Those of you who like to study eschatology, scratch on that for a little while. Go back to Hebrews, or I'm sorry, Peter, where he talks about, you know, the earth would be burned away, etc., etc. Many just want us to believe that God's going to kind of use this and reshape it and everything, but they got a problem. That word new doesn't mean that. That word really means new, totally new. From all of this, it's just clear that Jeremiah, along with Ezekiel, understood that the new covenant was to be a complete replacement of the old Mosaic covenant. It's a different kind of covenant. It's not a temporary pause of it. It's a total replacement of it. And I hope you're seeing why that matters at this point. I hope you're seeing why that matters. Let us turn our attention to the New Testament writers. Clicking right and out of time. Did they understand the new covenant as established upon the arrival of the promised king priest, Jesus, as that which would replace the old covenant arrangement which Jehovah had with Israel? I think they did. Just in short, all we would need is the witness of the letter of Hebrews. Think about it as we've been tracking through the letter of Hebrews, chapter 1, all the way to where we're at today. What has he been demonstrating, beloved? He's been demonstrating using Psalms 110, Psalms 2. We looked at all. We, I, didn't, I, recited, I didn't recite all of them, but I gave you all those Old Testament passages in the Scripture. He's using all of that to construct this inspired sermonic argument to these first century Jews of current Christianity, that the new covenant's here. If all we had was the book of Hebrews, it would be very clear this inspired writer understood it that way. He did not understand it, that it's the same covenant, just in a different form. He didn't understand it, that the old covenant's still valid and just put on pause until a certain period of time. However, the writings of the other apostles, especially the Apostle Paul, Brother Grizz, i got to say that because what you are saying before church today, especially that of the Apostle Paul, clearly demonstrate that they all understood that they were living in the midst of the establishment of this glorious covenant of peace, the establishment of this new covenant, this better covenant, the second covenant. And while time doesn't afford us the privilege of exhausting all of the New Testament witness, look at your sermon notes. I gave you two, which I think really amplify or highlight the preciousness of what makes the new covenant new. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. What did Paul, inspired by God's Spirit, say there? He's not a Jew, which is one outwardly. You see, that was the problem with that old covenant. No, neither is he a Jew that, is, that has circumcision. That's not what makes you a Jew. It, it made you a Jew in the old covenant, in the former first covenant, which is outward on the flesh, verse 29, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter. We, uh, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all of that right there is the, re, the realized blessings of the new covenant, isn't it? 
a circumcised heart, not by the letter. I'm not motivated by the legal punishment and framework to come and to give my allegiance to the the Messiah King. No, He's changed my heart. And this is why. This is, of course they understood, didn't they? That the new covenant had come. This covenant of peace had arrived. He's He's putting their law in their hearts. And now we're kind of treading a little bit on next week's sermon, the distinctiveness of the new covenant. But we're just wanting to see here, beloved, that that the New Testament writers, especially Paul, did understand that the new covenant had come and it had replaced the old covenant. It's vanished away. It's vanishing away. Ephesians 2, 11-14. Remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ the Messiah being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Who's Israel? Oh, those are the people that have the old covenant. They're the first covenant people. You are aliens from what they benefited from. And you were strangers, here it is, from the covenants of promise. What promise? What covenants of promise? The covenants we were just talking about that they're pointing to. Having no hope and without God in the world. Ah, but now, it's arrived. It's replaced that old covenant, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off, made by made draw. I'm sorry, far off or made nigh by the blood of Christ, for He is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. We could go all through the Old Testament, especially Isaiah, to demonstrate that this was a hallmark of the coming and the establishment of the new covenant, that God's people, all Israel and all Judah, would come together at one, including. The Gentiles, for the King Messiah was a light unto the Gentiles. When? When that day would come. Behold, there's a day coming. Of course, the New Testament writers understood that the New Covenant was established. And it was intended to replace the former old broken covenant. Of course, Paul, with all the apostles, were only sharing what they had received from Jesus himself. Why don't we just go to the Lord's words, right? I know, I'm sorry, I took you through the apostles and tried to demonstrate it from the witness of some of their um, testimony. But the clearest example, and indeed the answer to our current question of whether the new covenant abrogated and replaced the Mosaic covenant can be found in Luke 22.20, where our Lord Jesus Christ said, Likewise, also the cup after the supper, saying, This cup, what it symbolized, brother, what you were talking about before church, what it symbolized, the sealing of that covenant of peace, the sealing of that eternal transaction between Him and the Father upon the cross, this cup is the new covenant, the covenant of peace. Amen? The everlasting covenant, the better covenant, the second covenant, the new covenant, no matter how you want to say it, in my blood which is shed for you, His church. The Lord Jesus, I think, clarifies it right there. Concluding thoughts. Brothers and sisters, taking time considering the overall context of Jeremiah's prophecy in which the new covenant was given much further revelation, we can rightly conclude that Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, and the other biblical prophets They were all part of an overall witness from God during the Old Covenant time period, which consistently, as a mouthpiece for the Lord, notice the consistency of the Lord's message to His people through His prophets, 
of a promised restoration where he would be their God and they would be his people. And it would come to full climax in this better covenant with the arrival of their king. And thus, the believing Jew, that is what the Bible calls the remnant, such as Simeon. You remember Simeon in the temple waiting for baby Jesus, waiting for the baby Messiah? There's, there's, a, there's a remnant of Israel right there. They were all expecting the recession and the replacement of the first covenant with the arrival of their king, priest, Messiah, and the new covenant that he would bring and establish with them. All of this Old Testament prophecy is a backdrop for you and I to help us to understand the significance of what the inspired writer of Hebrews is doing here in chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. He directly applies it to the coming of Jesus Christ and His kingdom in which the writer has been demonstrating he knows right now Christ is ruling on His heavenly throne. And He is administering through His Spirit the substance of this blessed covenant. Now Lord willing, in our next message, we're going to look more closely at the distinguishing marks of the better covenant, of the new covenant. We'll answer such questions as, who are members of this covenant? What's the difference? We've touched on a little bit already. But what's the difference between it and the old covenant, the blessings? What happened to the people that were under the administration of the old covenant? What happened to them? Did God just abandon them and leave them to their own? We're going to answer some of these questions and we'll finally conclude why the writer of Hebrews is demonstrating it's so superior and ought to be an anchor for our souls who on this side of the cross standing in the new covenant We still have trials, don't we? We still have doubts. We still have that creeping old covenant principle at times that creeps into our Christian life. That if I do this, I'll get favor from God. If I do this, my prayer will be answered. That's that's creeping old covenant understanding, friends. We'll answer all of that in the coming messages is now we shift away from finally, I hope you include me. If, if, if there's a brother or sister in the church that say, you know what, there's one more aspect of the old covenant we got to unpack. Let me know. I'd love to do it. But I think we can put it to rest that there was a need, verse 7, for a new covenant and a better covenant. Amen. Because the first one was defective and faulty. And we can put to rest that it was the consistent interpretation of all of the Bible that this first covenant had a purpose. It served its purpose. It was always intended to recede into the background and vanish away and be replaced by a new covenant. I hope that was helpful because we can use that in, 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 our, in our interactions with other Christians. You know, uh, you know when you go to the bank, they teach, or you're going to go to the bank, you get a job, they, they teach you how to uh, observe counterfeit money by knowing the real money. And what we're doing in the text navigating through this covenant language and all these things, beloved, is we're just trying to figure out what does that mean and what is the real understanding of the covenants. Because when we know that, then our ears and our minds are a little bit more discerning when we hear people talking about the covenants and you know trying to con- conflate categories and things like that. We may not have all the answers, but at least you can be prepared to say, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. There was, there's this underlining principle. I know, I remember you know, from Hebrews 8. And what, he's, what that man, woman is saying there, that's not right. I've I, I got I to gotta go back to those sermons. Oh, hope sermon audio is still on. We go back and listen to the sermon audio. Right? But that's what we're doing. 
Because it is hard for us, admittedly, I think, to understand why some of this technical doctrinal preaching is necessary. Oh, but it is necessary. It is necessary. These are important distinctions that we all ought to become familiar with. And in doing so, with a closing thought here, it had better ground us in the gospel and avoid many of the theological ditches which have come upon the church, especially over the last 100 to 150 years. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the precious name of our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, the High Priest, who is established through his own blood, who has consecrated by that oath in eternity past this glorious, precious new covenant by which the power of his Spirit has circumcised our hearts. It has made us willing vessels to come and to be his footstool to be His servant. We thank You, O God, that we have been given this blessed new reality in Thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless, I pray, Your supper as we approach it and we remember His great sacrifice and that pivotal point in redemptive history by which He instituted, He with His own blood sealed and He finalized what we so benefit from. And you, through Christ, remember no more our iniquities or our sins. Praise be to Him. I I hope and I pray that when we come to our next song, that all of these things that we have spoken about flood our minds. They fill our heart with Holy Spirit-wrought affections and gratitude for our King, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. How Simeon in the temple that, morning, that day was looking for the coming Messiah. And he actually, by your blessing, was able to hold him and to see him and, and to know that you're still God and you're faithful to your promises. And perhaps there's someone here this morning, oh God, who need to be reminded as Simeon was by beholding Christ afresh and anew in the supper. Perhaps, oh God, they are at a place where they are doubting, they are weary, they are tired. I pray that you would feed them Feed their souls with a reminder of what the security and the rest is established upon in this glorious arrangement that you have with us as our God and we as your people. Praise be to Jesus Christ. We worship Him and we thank Him for He is worthy of all of our adoration. And we pray in His glorious holy name. Amen.